Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Before I get into this episode, I just wanted to take the time and say there were a couple of pronunciations in this episode that I struggled with, so I want to be as respectful to the victims as possible, so in no way, shape, or form am I trying to be disrespectful by not being able to pronounce their names. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers, to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode of The Jury Room, no one is safe from the Night Stalker. He's a devil worshiper who's murdering his way through the city of angels. And for a while, he seems unstoppable. This is Richard Ramirez. The weather was warm and welcoming in Los Angeles that June night. The normally smog-heavy air was disguised by a tantalizing scent of salt water, of freeing summer nights. It felt like Southern California paradise. 79-year-old Ginny Vincow slept with her window open, the only shield between the woman and the outside world, a cheap, removable screen. Still, it let the breeze in. She felt safe enough. It had been years since she moved into the faded pink apartment building, and her son lived in the unit above hers. What could happen? She sunk into a peaceful sleep. She didn't know that someone was watching her window, that a 24-year-old man, a cocaine addict, was looking to score some quick cash to resupply his stash. When he saw her screen, he figured it'd be easy enough. He'd climb through the window of apartment two in that bubblegum pink apartment building. He'd take what he needed. Then, he'd disappear into the night. When he was sure no one could see him, he slid on a pair of thick green gardening gloves and walked over to the window. He fiddled with the screen but it wasn't easy. His gloves were getting in the way, making it impossible to get a good grip on the window frame. He ripped off a glove and tried again. This time, the screen slid off with ease. He hoisted himself up and climbed inside the unfamiliar apartment. Ginny Vincow, hard of hearing, was still asleep. The man looked around for something, anything of value, to steal. But there wasn't anything. The quaint, one-bedroom apartment was riddled with poverty. A furry washed over him. 
a bitter resentment for wasting his time at this useless place. He looked around and saw the cracked door to Jenny Venkow's bedroom. He marched inside, closing the door behind him. The 79-year-old woman, tucked beneath her sheets, barely had time to open her eyes before she felt the weight of an armed stranger on top of her. He slashed her throat within centimeters of decapitation. He stabbed her all over her chest and body again and again and again. He raped her dead body. Then he left her there for her son to find the next morning. He climbed back out the window and vanished into the darkness. During the investigation, police found his fingerprint on the mesh window screen. But there was a problem. The year was 1984. They didn't have the ability to test it. So, the monster, 24-year-old Richard Ramirez, got away with murder, and he was still thirsty for blood. Over the next year, he would steal 13 more lives and rape countless others. He'd gain notoriety as the Night Stalker. This mysterious man of the darkness who was terrorizing LA. Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29, 1960. He was the youngest of five children. His parents, Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, were Roman Catholics. Mercedes worked hard to instill these values into her son, enrolling him in Sunday school and reading Bible verses to the boy and his siblings. The Ramirez family was not well off. Mercedes had spent many of her pregnancies working in a highly toxic shoe factory without a mask or any ventilation. Before Richard was born, his parents lived just outside of a nuclear experiment site in Los Alamos, New Mexico. They had been exposed heavily to radiation during their time there. Whether from the shoe factory or from the nuclear site or both, the chemicals had clearly seeped into Mercedes' blood and hung around for her pregnancies. Two of Richard's siblings were born with deformities. Ramirez's dad had been a cop in his home country of Mexico, but in Texas, the only job he could land was a laborer at a railroad station. He worked long, exhausting hours and came home in a bad mood. He'd take his anger at the world out on his kids, beating them whenever a rage took over. Richard and his siblings learned from a young age to fear their father's nasty wrath. When Richard was two years old, he suffered from the first of two head injuries when a heavy dresser toppled over him. At five, a playground swing struck him in the skull. This injury was so severe that Richard began suffering epileptic fits. 
Richard struggled in school. He didn't care that much about the material and would sometimes skip class to go to the arcade. When he turned nine, he found out that his older brother was sniffing glue and asked him if he could try it. Soon, he was addicted to the light and freeing feeling it gave him. It wasn't long before he was smoking marijuana. Desperate to feel a mental escape, from his father's abusive behavior. Around the same time, he started sleeping in the cemetery just to avoid a beating. Richard's mother was still forcing the kid to go to Sunday school, not realizing that the classes were unraveling something dark within him. When he listened to the teachers preach about Jesus, he was fixated, but not on the Christian savior. And now, for a quick break. This is Kim. And this is Kale. And you're listening to Shiny Things. It's a podcast about everything and nothing. Join us each Thursday as we explore the world of true crime, the supernatural, psychology, nostalgia, urban legends, and life in general. We hope you keep listening and we look forward to you becoming part of the Shiny Things family. Now, back to the show. He was fixated on the stories of black angels, of the fiery wraths of hell, of a demonic figure called Satan. After Sunday school, he'd head to the library and bury his head in books of darkness. At the same time, his friends introduced him to Black Sabbath and Judas Priest. He would blast the music while smoking marijuana and opening his mind to twisted images of demons, snakes, and dragons. When he turned 12, he started hanging around with his cool older cousin, Mike. Mike was a tough guy, a Vietnam vet, who didn't seem to be afraid of anything. Richard looked up to him with stars in his eyes excited to spend time with this older person who accepted him and mike was equally enthusiastic about letting his little cousin into his world it just happened to be a world of terrible violence mike had a taste for violence for control he showed richard polaroids he took during the war of bloody corpses that he had murdered he also showed him photographs of women he had brutally raped and killed, bragging to 12-year-old Richard about his sexual deviance and power. For the first time, Richard began thinking about sex and associating it heavily with violence. According to criminologist Dr. Scott Bond, who was interviewed about Ramirez by A&E, what seems to happen with some serial killers, and it happened with Jeffrey Dahmer, the BTK Strangler, and Bundy, is that right around puberty, sex and violence fuse in their mind. Sex and violence fuse in their minds, and they become aroused by violence. When his cousins showed him those photographs, Ramirez became sexually aroused and that was right around the age of 13. That same year, Richard was hanging out at Mike's house when Mike and his wife, Jesse, got in a fight. 
In a rage, Mike shot Jesse point blank in the face, killing her right in front of Richard. Blood from the blow splattered on Richard's cheek. After the murder, Richard withdrew from his family. He rarely showed up to dinner, and if he did, he wouldn't say much. His school attendance got even worse. Eventually, he went to live with his sister Ruth and her husband Roberto. Roberto wasn't a much better influence on the impressionable, neglected middle schooler. He was a peeping Tom who took Richard along with him to spy on unsuspecting women. Once again, sex and violence were tangled in the young boy's brain. His preteen years were marked by images of bloody, naked corpse and women changing through their windows. The boom of Mike's gun echoed in his head as he hid with his uncle Roberto in the bushes. Richard started taking LSD when he turned 13. That same year, his fascination with Satan transformed into an obsession. He became devoted to the demon and using his worship as an excuse for bad behavior. He started breaking into houses, stealing, just for the thrill of it. When he turned 15, Richard dropped out of high school and got a job at a Holiday Inn. It was the perfect setting for his sadistic behavior. He was given a pass key that could get him inside any room, and he used it to his benefit. He'd break into patrons' rooms while they were sleeping, stealing their stuff. He got away with it for a few months before he decided to take things a step further. His violent sexual fantasies were growing and he was ready to act on them to see if the reality tasted as good as he thought it would. He led himself into a room where he knew a woman was alone. He leapt on her bed and held her down. He was about to rape her when her husband walked in unexpectedly. He tackled Richard and beat him up mercilessly before calling the police. Richard was fired from his job, but he still got away with the heinous act. The couple didn't press charges. They had been visiting from another state, and they didn't want to travel back for a long, drawn-out court process. Richard laid low for a few years. But when he was 18, he started getting reckless. He was arrested for possession of marijuana. He had to pay a fine. But that wasn't quite enough to teach the kid a lesson. He was arrested for the same reason a few months later. And again, was only given a fine. A few months after that, he was arrested for reckless driving. He managed to avoid jail by agreeing to a three-month probation and some work at a local youth center. After his probation ended, the 18-year-old yearned for some fresh scenery. He boarded a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles and never looked back. The neglected neighborhoods of Los Angeles in the 1980s were riddled with crack, cocaine, and violence. For Richard, it was a thrilling, 
and welcome atmosphere. He fit right in. Unfortunately, though, his lifestyle wasn't totally sustainable. His cocaine addiction was growing to the point where he couldn't get through the day without it. What started as occasional snorting had grown to constant injections. On one occasion, he broke a needle into his arm. The coke was costing him $1,500 a week, a hefty price for a kid without a job. Ramirez needed money. He started stealing cars and breaking into homes for easy cash. He lived on a diet of cocaine and sugar. So it wasn't long before his teeth started to rot. He divided his time between LA and San Francisco, crashing wherever he felt like it. He just followed where his addiction led him, not putting much thought into where he was sleeping. Ramirez was still an obsessive Satan worshiper. He believed that the best way to prove his devotion to the devil was to perform a sacrifice for him. He needed to slay someone and present him to the devil on an altar. In April 1984, nine-year-old Mei Lung was found in the basement of a hotel in San Francisco, a hotel where Ramirez was staying at the time. The little girl had been beaten, raped, and stabbed to death. Her body was found strung up from a pipe, positioned to look like Jesus Christ. It was a sacrificial slaying. Mei Lung's murder was not directly tied to Ramirez until 2009, when DNA tested from the scene proved to be a match. Ramirez died before he could ever be formally charged for this crime, but is widely believed that this little girl was Ramirez's first victim. By June, Ramirez was back in Los Angeles, and he had a problem. He had run out of coke. Sweaty and manic from withdrawal, he went out looking for some money. That's when he noticed Ginny Vincal's window. That's when he let himself inside. Once Ramirez had tasted blood, there was no turning back. He had found a drug even stronger than cocaine. Murder. He got addicted fast. Between June 1984 and March 1985, there are no known slain victims of the murderer, but that doesn't mean he didn't kill. Detectives believe that it is highly unlikely that the serial murderer managed to suppress his murderous urges for that many months. Still, just because he wasn't ending people's lives during those nine months doesn't mean he was trying to destroy them. That same fair-weathered 1984 summer, six-year-old Anastasia Haronas was sleeping in her bed when a monster crept through her window. He picked up the child, carried her through the window, and placed her inside of his car. In the recent documentary, Night Stalker, she recalled to interviewers, I don't know how long I was in the car. He wanted me to look at him and touch him and things like that. I remember saying, stop, this hurts. Something in the way that he would look at me. It was almost like 
I'm sorry that I'm doing this to you, but I'm not sorry, because I'm not going to stop. When he finished with Anastasia, he dropped her off at a gas station, telling her to call the police and have them drive her home. It wasn't uncommon for Ramirez to leave survivors. If a person cooperated, he was more likely to let them live. If they didn't, he wouldn't hesitate to shoot them or slash their throats, regardless of their age or gender. In fact, Ramirez's random selectiveness is one of particularly intriguing element about the serial killer. He did not have any specific gender, race, or age that he went after. He chose his victims based on whose house had an open window or an unlocked door. He didn't really care who he'd find inside, who he'd have to get out of his way. Still, though, he tended to brutalize and rape the women and shoot the men dead quickly. Hey, Tim, do you like horror movies? Why, yes, I do, Matt. You want to hear two ridiculous horror fanatics discuss all the scary movies that just came out? Wait, you must be talking about our podcast, Happy Horror Time. You bet your ass I am. Oh, clean it up, Matt. No, see, that's the best part. On Happy Horror Time, you get uncensored and unpolished reviews of all things horror. We find all the latest releases, we watch them, and then discuss them in our real talk kind of style. AKA, we're crazy! Uh, that too. And don't forget, we also interview classic horror stars and insiders asking them all the questions you've always wanted to know but were afraid to ask. <laughs> like when Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp told us how they found her stand-in for that big reveal at the end. Yep, you gotta listen to find out. Check out Happy Horror Time, a podcast for horror lovers. Or anyone who just wants to have a good time. Because anyone can have a happy horror time. Hello, and welcome back to episode 13 of the Jury Room Podcast. I just wanted to take the time to say thanks to every single one of you who have been listening from the beginning. Uh, it's definitely been a journey, and it's growing rapidly, and I appreciate it. I can't, I can't thank you enough. Uh, with that being said, though, I got to sit down with V from Paranormal with V Podcast, and... She told me a harrowing story. Now, this affects a lot of people, and it's one of those things that you just need to stay vigilant. Make sure you're always aware of your surroundings at all times, and keep everyone around you safe. If you feel like you are being harassed or being stalked, please call 911. There's also the human trafficking line. Just call and help people. It's a sad world that we live in where another human being is enslaved for somebody else's bidding. This is V and I's conversation. It's just up to us how we deal with situations and people like, you know, for instance, what happened to me and my children at the park that day I told you. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, what do I, what do I do? And the first thing that came to mind, bam, like it was crazy. I started following you. I think that day it happened or the night before, but I had read about, you know, I had read, I had read your Twitter feed and then I started listening to your podcast. Like, man, I was like, his show would like be really like perfect to speak about like some of the stuff that's happening here in Tucson and not just here in Tucson, but like, 
even in Phoenix, it's more prevalent in Phoenix right now, but sure. even at the border town, like mm. Nogales, it's just really bad in general. It's gotten horrible over the years. And, um, I think it's worse now because I think people are so distracted with their technology, with their devices, with their life. Everybody's so busy. They're moving, they're moving. They're not paying attention. Right. To, they're not being vigilant anymore. And it's not about being paranoid. It's about being aware, you know, people don't, will not know anything if they're, they're not aware of it, you know? So, um, that was just crazy how we were, t we just started talking and, you know, um, yeah. So, <laughs> so well, since you brought it up and, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of my episodes and such, I, I, st you know, I do center around, you know, missing and exploded children, you know, yeah. human trafficking is something that you know, needs awareness across the board, not necessarily just in, in Tucson, but you know, across the whole world. And it's one of those situations that it's, it's horrible. It's horrible for everybody. It's horrible for the victims, you know, and a lot of people are like, well, you know, they say women, but the reality of it is, is that we're getting into an age that anybody can be trafficked. It, uh, it doesn't matter where, you know, it's just women, but you know, in your case, in your example, you know, being that it was you and your kids, you know, and you're focused on your kids. And, and that's not even an instance of being focused on your phone or focused on whatever else is going on. You're focused yeah. on your kids, which is the absolute yeah. right thing to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get, you know, people trying to take advantage of that. And that's the problem that I have across everybody. It, it's just not it's not fair and it's not, it's, I don't know. It's just disgusting. So why don't you go yeah. ahead and just describe your situation? What happened? Like what okay. was that, the kind of the time frame of what was going on? I believe it was about 11 o'clock on a Sunday and I wanted to take the boys out and just get some fresh air. So I wrangled them up, got our um, family dog and we headed to the partner home. And already I, I, wasn't sure if it was because I was feeling you know tired but I had this feeling I didn't want to go so I, I wish I would have listened to that feeling but I parked nonetheless parked on the side by the park and um, noticed I was there wasn't a lot of people but there were enough people to be around so just started walking um, and we got a little bit further away from our car um, probably a good not even a good mile away and um, it was so odd because one of my sons just, uh, you know, out of the blue wanted to go feed the ducks. So I said, you know, what? all right, let's turn around. And as we turn around, I noticed, um, and two things now looking back and playing this over and over in my mind, I did see this man, um, uh, in front of us, probably a good 10 feet away from us, but he was going to walk on the opposite side of the sidewalk. But when he saw us, he stopped dead in his tracks, looked at us, and started coming our way. And I noticed two other guys did the same thing, but instead of coming towards us, they went around him and started going in another direction, kind of bypassing him, but making it so that they could come behind us. Or I think they were actually probably what I feel that would have happened if nobody inter intervened um, is those men were probably going to get the car or a van or something like that. Cause I did not see them. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I'll get back to that actually. But so when I saw this man, I had a horrible feeling. He was just looking at uh, me and specifically my son, my seven-year-old. And I have a toddler, so he was in the stroller. My my seven-year-old is holding our dog, so he's holding onto the leash. And he's running a little bit um, ahead of me. And I go, no, 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 come back. You know, it was like, stand, stay right near me. Don't go any farther. So this guy kept walking and walking up towards us. So I was like, okay, he he might be homeless, but I he didn't look homeless to me. Um, he had a cell phone. He had a backpack, a hoodie. And um, he pretended that he was going to look through the trash. Because when I kept looking at him, I kind of kept looking at him and I, and I stopped to let him know, I see you, you know, mm-hmm. I see you, I see you looking at us. And it's kind of like when someone double takes and pretends, Oh, you know, she right. saw me, I'm going to pretend to do something else. So right. I caught him. So I kept walking and then out of nowhere, it was probably when he was almost about five feet away from us. I see this car and I noticed it was a silver, uh, I, th- I think it was like a Highlander or something, silver Highlander. And it came and it cut in between us. So I was like, oh, you know, at the time I was like, oh, how rude. <laughs> like, people have no, dr- <laughs> like, etiquette. Like, there's such a big parking lot. You could have, dr- you know, went over there on that side. But why did this person have to cut between us? Well, uh, that gave us time to, you know, walk further ahead of him. And, you know, so we did. I kept looking behind me and I did notice he would, he was just, he just kept standing there and looking over to us and walking. So I said, you know what? I told my son, we're not going to go to the pond today. We're going to go straight home. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, started crying. And I was like, oh, my God, something was telling me, get in your car and you have to go. You have to leave. Um, and I'm glad I did because he was still walking around straight our way. And, again, uh, you know, my son was crying. And the mom and me was like, okay, diffuse the situation. I was like, okay, let's go get ice cream. So that stopped it. He was um, – so adamant about going to the pond and my son's autistic. So I, I have to, you know, be, um, be able to, to help them in, in high stress situations. So I didn't want him to feel my anxiety. So we were almost about to get to our car when this, that silver Highlander drove up to us and she said, um, she got off of her car and there was two other ladies with her and she got off and she said, ma'am, I don't know if you, if you know this, but there is a guy who keeps, coming after you and your kids and we've chased him off about two times and the third time he finally got the the impression that we weren't going to you know let him you know go so he started walking the opposite way and uh I go oh no I did notice him I was like you were the car who drove in front of us I told her she goes yes and we kept circling around making you know making sure he would leave but she's like he wouldn't he came back another time to come follow you and um, she's like, no, we saw you in the parking lot. We saw the way he was looking at you. It, she's like, it broke my heart. And she was just in tears. You know, and she's like, I just had this horrible feeling. She's like, he was looking at you and especially your children, something wicked, she said. And she's like, I did not like that feeling. And she um, was telling me, you know, I'll, we'll wait here. We'll um, walk you right here to your car. We'll watch you guys get in. And um, she's like, we'll call the police. So we did. And um, we stayed there and we just kept talking. You know, she said, especially right now, she's like, we've been hearing about uh, reports of, you know, a lot of the kids go to the park to play Pokemon Go, right? So they come in droves, they come alone, but they go and they play. And there have been um, 
you know, reports of people getting assaulted, you know, kids getting walked up on um, and not abducted, but they've been like harassed mm. in a sense to that. They, they knew that this person wants to lure me away, you know? And, right. um, and I told the lady, I was like, I, I told the woman, I was like, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I don't even know why I said sorry, but I was like, I'm sorry. I don't even know that this was, I didn't even know this was happening across this, you know, from where I live. I had no idea this was happening, right. you know? Um, so they took off. Once I got to talk to the detective, um, you know, got, got a description and whatnot, they couldn't find this person. And that's, what's so weird is that this park is, <laughs> there's a police station right there. Right. There's, it's there's huge. Cops everywhere. Right. There's no reason, <laughs> there's no reason that, he could have gotten away by foot so fast. And uh, I'm thinking those guys, like I told you, I really feel that they had like a getaway um, car. Um, so I was talking to the detective and he was just telling me, you know, I, I really feel that you did the right thing. Um, we've been getting reports a lot, and, you know, and especially for, for um, people with children, you know, mm -hmm. uh, women who are out with their kids you know, they're more vulnerable for these guys, you know, and it's not just to, to assault them, to rob them. It's, it's to, it's to kidnap them, you know, and, and right now, and this gives me chills when, when we were talking, it's not the women that they're wanting. It's the kids, right. you know, kids. And it's horrible to say this, but, and as a mom, it makes me tear up and get angry, but it's like kids are more valuable. <laughs> And that's so sickening, you know, to know that a child is worth something in that in human trafficking, you know, with these, the buyers, whatever they are, you know, these evil people. And, right. um, when she told me that, um, and I, it, it brought me to thinking about, um, what that lady had told me, you know, she's like, I wasn't worried about so much for you, but for him. And she pointed at my little boy at my seven year old, because she was like, he kept looking at him. And that made my heart, like, I felt like getting mad, like crying, my heart sank. And then I got mad at myself because I was like, why did you have to come? <laughs> you knew something was going to happen. Um, nothing did. Nothing did. But I think that um, the area that I live in supposedly is very, very high right now in kidnapping mm -hmm. and, um, and assault. And uh, they were telling me specifically that they're targeting people with kids because they're more um, distracted. <laughs> it's right. easier. And um, I mean, you see a mom with kids coming out of a grocery store, you know, she's not paying attention, you know, it, it happens in an instant. Someone can just take drive by, get, get, yeah, get your kid and put them away, you know? Um, so the first thing I did was take down the baby on board sign in mm -hmm. my car. Uh, Cause I was talking with a detective and even my sister reiterated what, what they told me. They will follow you when you have that sign on, you know, they go around and they'll follow people around and, uh, follow them to their house or wherever they might go, you know, and, uh, it's happened a few times, um, to people here in Tucson right. and they're not only following, um, uh, people with children, you know, they're targeting women. So you can be driving and there've been, um, almost kidnapping attempts in the middle of the day, you know, just someone driving up on you. You're at the stoplight or a, a woman 
and it, it's it's horrible, you know. It's scary because, uh, you know, I, I'm not on social media. I stay away from that. So I think, uh, and, you know, everything happening in the news, I, I didn't want to be around it. So I, I wasn't. I wasn't educating myself. I wasn't, be, I wasn't staying um, vigilant. Oh, there you go. You know, um, so that, that's exactly what, what happened. And they didn't catch him. You know, the detective called me last week again and just give me an update. They're like, you know, we're going to, we can either close this or you can, you know, um, start a new one. I go, no, I was like, you know, I, I live around here. So if I ever see him, you know, I'll call you guys, you sure. know, but it's scary to know that, that he wasn't caught you know um when he was walking especially i have to say this i I didn't say this before but um he had one hand inside of his hoodie in the pocket and one hand to his side and um i've had a gun you know pointed at me before and i've seen when they are concealing it and Mm -hmm. before they take it out yeah it's it's not hard i mean even people in the movies would would have seen that sure would understand so when the cop told me are you sure they were carrying a weapon i was like 110 percent he had a weapon with him you know so because of those women being there and also my quick thinking as well as getting my kid to follow me and you know there was um also some people sitting at a picnic table and I waved at them and I said, hello, and acting like I knew them so that this guy also, you know, walking behind us could see, okay, there's pe- there's people around, you know, I'm not going to, not going to bother her. Um, it, it's just scary to me, you know, that this is happening right. every day, not just here, but, you know, all around the world with, with kids, it, it makes me um, sick as a parent, but I just hope that other people out there would, um, would just learn from my experience, it would help save them or their kid. <clears throat> Absolutely. And if anybody out there needs, you know, help as far as, you know, or if you know of somebody or you are a victim of human trafficking, you, you know, there's always, there's always help out there. You know, you call your local precincts, um, you know, they have a hotline set up. That phone number is one eight eight. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to try this again. 1-888-373-7888. They're available 24 hours, seven days a week. Uh, they're available in over 200 languages. So there are resources out there to help, you know, victims, children, women, men, whoever, you know, is, is involved. And a lot of it, the human trafficking is disgusting in its own right because there's no reason that as a human being being that we have free will that another human being should be able to enslave another human being period, you know, and that's the, the sad reality of it is, is that somewhere along the way, the human race feels they can put a value on another human being. And that's the, the, the sad, sad part about, That's horrible. you know, and so, um, but I, you know, I can hear, you know, definitely hear the, you know, that, that scared, you know, that fear, you know, and, and, and the fear is real because you, you never know what's going on. You know, you, you, you get distracted and, and, you know, and in this case, you're not even distracted by an electronic or a phone call, you know, it's your, it's your kids, you know, and, and rightfully Mm -hmm. so you're, you shouldn't, you should be able to 
go to the park, go to the grocery store, yeah. go anywhere with your kids and be, you know, completely, you know, you know, just they have your focus, which exactly. they should and not have to worry yeah. about getting stolen, you know, and that's, that's yeah. the, the reality and that, but it's sad because it's not the world we live in. Exactly. And, you know, I think also, cause you're talking about, it's like being distracted, but I've also realized it's not so much anymore. What I, I feel it's more of like people believing in their routine that it'll, it'll always stay the same. I'm going to get up. And at this time I take the kids to the park and we'll have a play date, you know, and this happens. You get so used to things happening every day. You never think to, you know, stop to think that something else could happen. You know, like I've, I've sat there and I'm with my kids at the park and I see other moms sitting there and they're like, okay, honey, I see you. And they're talking on their phone or talking to their friend next to them or something, catching up, having coffee. And I, I'm the one like looking around, I'm looking at that jogger that's over there, I'm looking at that guy sitting alone at that thing or, right. you know, it's, I think that we get too comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I just went out on a pretty day, it was beautiful, I thought to just go for a walk and it's just, you never think that that would happen, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's unfortunate, it yeah. catches you off guard, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like you said, you know, you do, you go to the park, really anywhere, and you see a mom, like you said, on the phone, or she's talking to a friend or catching up. And, you know, growing up, you know, it was like that with, you know, with my parents oh, yeah. as well, you know, where they would just be <laughs> like, go play, you know, and, and you're playing yeah. at the park. But the reality of it is, is if you're not watching you know, they're gone in a, in an instance and then that's it. Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen those videos of like, uh, I, I forget which state it was. It was, the baby was with the grandma. She went up to the counter. The kid was in, the little girl was in the, um, grocery cart. And I, I, this man out of nowhere just grabs her from the cart, starts walking out the doors with her. The grandma was able to like turn around and see she ran after him and they were able to get, the girl away but i've seen like several videos where even at the self-checkout in the grocery store the mom is turning to the screen and she's paying and the kid is in the grocery cart someone comes up and takes them out and just you know that that scares me right (laughs) you're doing it in front of a public place right like and not only public but there's people all around that's it's 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 crazy because the the I guess I want to say their balls, I guess, are getting bigger and bigger to do it, you know, in a more public setting. I mean, the reality of it is, is nothing is, is unfortunately nothing is sacred anymore in that world, you know? And I don't know. I wonder if they think this, like, I wonder if they know that we are all as a society so distracted and so not, you know, that we're dumb. Like what, what have we you know, what have we come to be? You know, we're right. just, we're thinking, we're not thinking, we're paying attention and, and it's true. We're not mindful. We've become, you know, these, where we just go, we're looking at what we need to do, but we're not paying attention. I think that's what they do is they take advantage of that. They take advantage of that weakness, you right. know, and you know, yeah, we're in a big grocery, crowded grocery store, but you see that second and that opportunity they see them as opportunity. She has her back turned. She's not paying attention. And it's like, bam, in that second. Yep. It's crazy. It's, and that, and like you said, it's that, it's that, oh, we have the attention spans of, of a, 
I mean, I hate to say it, but we have attention spans of five-year-olds anymore. You know what I mean? And that's like that's just the hard reality. And I'm I am just as guilty. Like I, I, uh, it's hard for me to focus on something for a long period of time if it's not that constant stimulation. You know? And we're all like that, right? And so. You know, it's one thing, you know, to, yeah, I don't know, man, the world's just crazy, but I, I do thank you for, for coming on and, uh, for sharing your story and My pleasure. you have your own podcast. Yes, I do. I do. It's completely different than what we're talking about right now, but I do. It's called, um, life paranormal with V. So yeah, you can, uh, yeah, it's basically available on every platform right now. I'm on, um, Spotify, Anchor, Apple podcasts. So you can also catch me on Twitter. If you want to follow me for any like live updates, at um, at the life paranormal and yeah, follow me if you are into and open to that other, uh, reality. <laughs> right. So that's, uh, you know, like I, like we were saying before, I've listened to a few of your episodes. I've listened to a few of your episodes. Um, yeah. you're great. You know, you, you definitely take, you know, you definitely take great pride in what you're doing and you, it's definitely a passion of yours. And so Thank we, you. we definitely need more of that out there is that, you know, that compassion and that passion in people because a yeah, lot of, uh, a lot of times anymore people are punching a clock and that's just their routine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about meaning. And I don't think we all have a purpose in life. I think it's a meaning, you know, you find meaning in your life. Um, it's, it's really a, a beautiful thing to, to find meaning in anything, you know, um, it's in everything that you do, you know, it's uh, I think a lot of people, we get wrapped up in what my purpose is and I, gonna you know this podcast is everything it's given me you know so much happiness and to speak my my truth about my my journey as a young child um you know uh with abilities that I didn't understand and um I definitely know that if it doesn't you know become a hit I I'm just happy with what it is right now and it's a lot of people I think get so um caught up in like what their purpose is supposed to be they're supposed to be a doctor they're supposed to become a cop you know like their dad was you know and when we don't attain those things that we get so we don't we feel like we have no meaning but but you know like you were saying it's about finding your passion and what you like to do and finding meaning in life right so i got one question for you one last question before i let you go and (laughs) it's a question that i ask everybody that comes on so you have to answer it or you're never allowed to come back again no i'm just kidding (laughs) Uh, so if you could be one condiment, what would you be and why? Oh my God. Obviously okay. you haven't listened to that many episodes. No, 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 no. It's not that. Cause I've, I've been trying to think of what I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> because all right. I am Latina. So I was like, I can't be salsa because I, I do like salsa on all my stuff. But for me, I like ketchup because ketchup goes with everything. If you're as weird as me and can put ketchup on different things, that's just how I am. But I think that's just how I feel. I'm like, I would be ketchup because I get, I get along with everybody, man. And I, I just feel like that's just the personality, I am, you know, and I love 
horror and spooky stuff. And I mean, there's a lot of blood in those movies, right? So catch up and there you go. I, don't know. <laughs> I like it. That's a good answer. That's a very thoughtful, that's, that's a well thought out answer. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I told you I was thinking about it. <laughs> you, probably, you sounded off guard. You sounded like you were caught off guard though. No, no, no. I was definitely thinking about it. <laughs> uh, but V thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. And uh, I guess if, if anybody could, if there's anything you could take away from V-Story, it's definitely stay vigilant, you know, be aware of your surroundings and, you know, don't fall victim to something that you can, you know, potentially fix in the first place. And again, nobody, you know, I am not victim blaming one bit. Shit happens mm-hmm. and yeah, it does. And it, it's literally a split second, you know, your whole world changes. And so... You know, but just stay vigilant and uh, V, I'd love to have you Follow on again. Your instincts. <laughs> Follow your yeah. instincts. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd love to be on again. Totally. Whenever. <laughs> well, thanks again. All right. You take care. Thank you, you so too. much, Kevin. Bye. All right. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe, like, review. I'm on most major podcasting platforms. Let me know how I'm doing. And again, Thanks for listening. This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy. And we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a follow. As if to get them out of the way, he placed children in binds and let them live, for the most part. Ramirez was a thrill seeker. He didn't carefully plan his murders, and he wasn't hyper-organized in his execution. He killed because he liked the feeling it gave him. He liked the power he felt. So he acted on urges, on instinct. When he wanted to kill, he killed, and usually he wanted to kill. This type of behavior is what separates Ramirez from serial killers like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy. Criminologist Dr. Scott Bond explained, I believe Richard Ramirez was a sociopath as opposed to a psychopath. A psychopath is absolutely incapable of feeling any normal range of emotions. And that was the case with Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. Ramirez, on the other hand, was prone to emotional outbursts, was very spontaneous and volatile. A sociopath is developed through life experiences and manufactured in society. And unlike Bundy or Gacy, who planned their murders meticulously, Ramirez randomly picked homes to break into. A psychopath wouldn't do that. A psychopath needs control. On March 17, 1985, Ramirez lost any semblance of control he may have still possessed. That night, 
he committed three acts of brutal violence that would lead to a vicious five-month murder spree. That night, Ramirez saw 22-year-old Maria Hernandez standing in her open garage in the L.A. suburb of Rosemead, California. He decided he wanted to kill her. He walked right into the garage and looking right into Maria's wide and terrified eyes, pulled the trigger of his 22 caliber handgun. Amazingly, Maria blocked the bullet with her car keys. Unbeknownst to Ramirez, she toppled to the ground and faked dead. Ramirez made his way inside her home. There, her roommate, 34-year-old Dale, was hiding behind the kitchen counter. She had heard the shot. She waited there, shaking for for minutes. But after a while, she didn't notice any movement. The house seemed silent, still, slowly, cautiously. She lifted her head to peer around the counter. Ramirez was waiting for her. He shot her point blank in the forehead. She died instantly. Ramirez was on a roll. He left the house and noticed Maria running away, but he didn't go after her. She was old news now. He needed some fresh meat. He hopped in his car and drove around for an hour before spotting a single woman, 30-year-old Veronica Yu, driving in a car in front of his. He followed her for a few blocks, tailgating her until she pulled over, intending to let him pass. But he didn't pass. He pulled over, too. He leapt from his car. He hastily approached her door and tried to tug her out of it. She fought back, so he fired two shots into her body and fled. She didn't survive the night. Meanwhile, Maria was describing the man who shot her and murdered her friend to the police. She described him as a curly-headed man with rotting teeth and blackened eyes. The police began their exhaustive search. Ramirez wasn't deterred by leaving behind a witness. If anything, he was invigorated. The serial killer had read obsessively about Ted Bundy and the Hillside Strangler, a murderer who had terrorized Los Angeles just years before Ramirez got to work in the city. He craved attention, fame, and notoriety. He waited 10 days before he committed his next murder. Then, on March 27th, 1985, Ramirez crept into a home on the outskirts of Whittier, California. He had been there before. He was familiar with the layout. The door and window locks, why? Well, he had robbed it years before. Inside the home was 64-year-old Vincent Charles Zazara and his wife, 44-year-old Maxine. Without waking the couple, Ramirez lifted his gun and pointed it at Vincent. He pulled the trigger, shooting him in the head. Now, Maxine was awake, confused, disoriented, terrified. Ramirez leapt on her, beating her and tying her up. 
when he felt she was secure, he made his way around the house, taking every item of value he could get his hands on. Maxine took the opportunity to escape and grab her husband's shotgun, which was kept under the bed. It was not loaded. She snuck up on Ramirez and pointed the gun at him. He shrugged, unafraid, and shot her three times. He stabbed her body countless times with her own kitchen knife before gouging out her eyes. He took them home with him as a souvenir. Police found and cast a pair of Ramirez's footprints from the scene, but this wasn't enough evidence to locate or identify the killer. There's not much known about how Ramirez spent his time between crimes, but it's safe to say he didn't steer away from the crime completely. He was still a heavy drug addict and likely committed various burglaries to feed his addiction. In May, Ramirez was ready to hunt again. He entered the Monterey Park home of 66-year-old Bill Joy and his wife Lillian, who was disabled. Bill was awake when Ramirez entered the home, and hearing the intruder, he ran into his dresser to get his shotgun. Before he could pull it from the drawer, Ramirez was standing over him, a dark shadow in the night. He shot Bill in the face, point blank, and beat him. Then, he found Lillian tucked in her bed and unable to escape. He used thumb cuffs to tie her hands together, then raped her. He left her bound to the bed while he ransacked her home, her husband dying on the floor, a room over. Finally, he left her there, alive. She managed to call 911. Her husband died at the hospital. When police removed the thumb cuffs from Lillian, her fingers were streaked in blood. Two weeks later, Ramirez made his way into the home of two elderly sisters, 83-year-old Mabel Bell and 81-year-old Florence Lang. He didn't wait to attack them, ready for that thrill he felt when he overcame another person. By now, Though he needed to do more than pull a trigger to satisfy his urges, he found a hammer in the kitchen and didn't hesitate to grab it, using it brutally to bludgeon Lang. When he finished with the 81-year-old, he made his way to Belle's bedroom, who he also bludgeoned. Next, he tied the women up with electrical cord and electrocuted them before raping Lang. That night was the first that Ramirez would leave a signature, a sick message for the police, a taunting. With lipstick, he drew a pentagram on Bell's thigh and on the wall of the bedroom. It wasn't just a message to the police. It was a message to Satan, letting him know that he had left him a sacrifice. It was just two days before the women were discovered, both alive in comas. Bell died, but Lang remarkably survived the attack. By now, the people of LA were utterly terrified of the sadistic killer, who no one appeared to be safe from. 
Gun sales and door lock sales increased rapidly. Newscasters gave the killer a name. The Night Stalker. Ramirez relished in his glory. Feeling invincible, like he could get away with it forever. He didn't even wait 24 hours to strike again. He made his way to Burbank, where he stealthily entered the home of 42-year-old Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son. He tied the mother to her son and ransacked the home, but he didn't find much of value. Frustrated, he untied the mother and forced her to lead him to the home's most valuable possessions. Then, he raped her, over and over, her son tied up in the next room. He told her that if she so much as glanced at him, he'd cut her eyes out. When he was done, he tied her once again to her child. Then, he fled the scene. For a little over a month, no one was murdered. A dreadful quiet hung over the city as the residents simultaneously waited for the next victim and hoped that this monster had just disappeared. When all of June passed without a headline, they began to relax, to breathe. He was gone, right? Not quite. Ramirez stole a car and made his way to Arcadia on July 2nd. There... He found a house that was left unlocked. It belonged to Mary Louise Cannon, a 75-year-old widow and grandmother who lived alone. Cannon's granddaughter had warned her grandmother months earlier to lock her door, but there was a killer on the loose. But Cannon refused to live in fear. Tragically, this decision would cost her her life. Cannon was sleeping soundly when Ramirez hovered over her body, lifting a bedroom lamp above her head. He bludgeoned her with the household item before stabbing her repeatedly with a butcher knife that he had dug up from her kitchen. By the time her family found her, she had died of her injuries, and the killer was nowhere to be found. Three days later, Ramirez made his way to Sierra Madre, where he beat a 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron. He couldn't find a kitchen knife to finish the job, so out of desperation, he grabbed a telephone. He wrapped the cord around her neck and pulled in an effort to strangle her. Instead, he was shocked by white sparks that lit up along the cord as he tugged. Bennett's breathing did not stop. Ramirez was struck by this. Unsure how the teenager could have possibly survived his attack, he decided that the sparks on the telephone cord were a sign that Jesus was protecting this girl, saving her life. Ramirez left without finishing the job. Bennett needed 378 stitches to sew her scalp back together. The sign from Jesus did not slow the killer down, however. He believed that Bennett in particular had been spared for some holy reason, but not that Jesus wanted to intervene with all of his sadistic work. So on July 7th, he headed into another house to start again. This time, 
It was the home of 61-year-old Joyce Nelson. She had fallen asleep on the couch that night. Ramirez beat her to death, leaving a shoe print on her face that matched the footprint found at previous murders. Later that night, he entered 63-year-old Sophie Dickman's home and sexually assaulted her. He ransacked her house, rummaging through drawers, discarding anything he didn't value, trashing room after room, and demanded that Sophie tell him if there was anything value left inside of it. When she said, I swear to God there isn't, he shouted that she needs to swear to Satan. It was late July when Ramirez decided to up his efforts to get even more creative, even more evil. He swung by a hardware store, walking carefully through aisle after aisle, scanning the shelves for his newest weapon. Then he saw it, a glistening machete with a blade sharp enough to cut through bone. He purchased it, then went in search for its unlucky victim. He drove his stolen Toyota to Glendale, California, where 66-year-old Linda Needing was sleeping beside her husband, Maxon. Their quiet dreams quickly turned to a nightmare, a nightmare that was all too real. They awoke to the blade of a merciless machete sinking into their skin, cutting into their bones, hacking them into pieces. They were awake and alive through the carnage. When Ramirez was satisfied with his gruesome work, he shot them each in the head, finishing the job. He played with his new toy for a while more after their death, mutilating their bodies, twisting shreds of their skin around the blade. He robbed them, then headed straight to the next victim. Chainarong and Smokid were asleep in their Sun Valley home when a bullet lodged Chainarong's skull. He never woke up. His wife clung to her bleeding husband, but Ramirez grabbed her and pulled her away from him. He raped her. Then he heard the sound of quick, scared breaths from somewhere in the house. He forced Smokid to come with him as he scanned her home for other residents. He found her eight-year-old son quivering and crying in terror. He bound him, his mother watching, then ransacking the home. Smokid and her son survived the attack, but they will live the rest of their lives without their beloved husband and father. Ramirez waited a few weeks before he struck again. He must have been getting tired. His confidence, though, had not faltered. He rested until August 6th when he broke into a young couple's home. Chris and Virginia Peterson were in their late 20s when a monster crept into their bedroom. This time, Ramirez would have to fight. He shot Virginia in the face and Chris in the neck. But with remarkable strength and bravery, Chris fought this demon for his life. Ramirez was not up for the fight. 
He fled into the night, leaving the young couple alone to bleed out in their bedrooms. Miraculously, though, they both survived. Likely shaken from the confrontation, Ramirez lay low for two days. Still, he was powerless against his urges. Nothing could keep him down for long. On August 8th, he headed to Diamond Bar, California, where 31-year-old Elias Abwith and his wife, 34-year-old Sakina, were sleeping. In his typical M.O., he shot and killed Elias right away. He raped Sakina, forcing her to swear to Satan, not to scream. Her three-year-old son heard the commotion and wandered into the bedroom. Afraid for his parents, Ramirez tied the boy up and continued to rape his mother in front of him. The boy and his mother survived the attack. By now, the police were getting closer to identifying Ramirez. They had plenty of surviving witnesses and evidence was building. And now, for a quick break. Hello, one and all, to the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show. <laughs> Hello, who's this? Just, just don't hurt the kids, okay? Who would win in a steel cage match between Andy Crane, Andy Peters versus Neil Buchanan and Tommy oh. Boyd? Sounds like a scratchy robot chicken. 12 inch. B.A. Baracca's dolls that you do, didn't really, didn't you really do go like with a 12 incher. <sighs> Here we go. Uh, it worked how I think it's going to work. It's going to be bang average. Oh, I'm just, I'm just over it now. Now, back to the show. The news was covering his killings on a nearly 24-hour loop. Ramirez decided to escape to San Francisco until the city got a chance to cool down. His time away from L.A., though, did not mean a time away from murder. On August 18th, he broke into the home of Barbara Penn and her husband Peter. The couple were in their mid-60s when they met their untimely death, the result of a bullet to the head. Ramirez sexually assaulted Barbara before he killed her. This was the second crime scene in which Ramirez left his mark, drawing a pentagram beneath the words, Jack the Knife, on the couple's bedroom wall. Their corpse leaked blood onto the bed beneath it. Now, San Francisco and Los Angeles Police Departments were on the hunt for the killer. His days were numbered. The police were indeed getting closer than ever to identifying him. But Ramirez seemed to be one step ahead. In San Francisco, Mayor Diane Feinstein leaked the type of shoe investigators knew the killer wore. Seeing this, Ramirez dumped his shoes over the Golden Gate Bridge before he made his way back south. Ramirez didn't stop in Los Angeles right away, still worried that he might be caught more quickly in the city. Instead, he drove to Mission Viejo and attempted to break into the Romero family's residence. Before he could, 
he was spotted by 13-year-old James Romero III, who woke up his parents to alert them of the intruder. Ramirez fled, but not before the father, James Romero II, could write down part of his license plate number and bring it to the police. Ramirez, unaware the police had information about his stolen vehicle, stopped by another house and crept through an unlocked back door. This house belonged to 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, Inez Erickson. After shooting Bill in the head three times, he beat and bound Inez, telling her to tell them that the Night Stalker was here. Bill remarkably survived the shooting. In the meantime, the police were getting to work with the new information about the killer's license plate. They tracked the car a few days later to a garage in Los Angeles, where they found a fingerprint on the rearview mirror. This time, they tested the print and found out it belonged to Richard Ramirez. They released his mugshot from traffic arrest years earlier to the public. We know who you are now. Law enforcement growled into a microphone at a press conference. And soon, everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. Ramirez did not see the press conference. He was away in Arizona visiting his brother. One of the very few times, if not the only time, he left the state during his murder spree. He came home on a Greyhound bus on October 31st, walking right past police officers, staking him out at the bus stop. He wandered into a convenience store, still unaware that the public now knew him and overheard a Mexican woman whisper, El Matador, or the killer, to her friend. Ramirez stiffened. It was then he glanced at a newspaper on the newsstand and saw his face staring up at him with blackened eyes. He sprinted out of the store and ran across the Santa Ana freeway, where he attempted to carjack a woman. Onlookers noticed the ordeal and chased the killer down, recognizing him from his mugshot. This led to a group-wide neighborhood chase. Ramirez, claiming later that he was exhausted, finally gave up. He was tackled by residents of the neighborhood, who beat him and even smashed his head with a metal bar. Richard Ramirez would kill no more. But that doesn't mean he would be quiet about it. There is a haunting image of Ramirez sitting in a courtroom during jury selection. In his worn down prison uniform, he holds his hand up to reveal an image of a pentagram that he scribbled onto his palm. Hail Satan, he shouted at the jury. After an eventful trial in which Ramirez wore sunglasses, and waved to his groupies, a cluster of women who were bizarrely attracted to the serial killer. Ramirez was sentenced to death. In response, he told reporters, big deal, death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. In prison, 
Ramirez began a romantic relationship. His first, it would seem, with one of his so-called groupies. Doreen Loy had written the killer 75 letters between his arrest in 1985 and 1998. When Ramirez proposed, Loy apparently was drawn to Ramirez's vulnerability. They married on October 3rd, 1996, holding a ceremony right there in San Quentin State Prison. Lloyd vowed to commit suicide upon Ramirez's execution so that the two could be together for all of eternity. Of course, Doreen's betrothal to the sadistic serial killer cost her her family, including her twin sister, who told the examiner, It's unfortunate for me that I have been linked with all of this. I was taken back by the news. To be related by birth is fine. I don't want to be part of this. It's been a painful event for the family. The couple stayed together for years. Doreen's commitment never wavering. She told reporters, he's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I think he's a really great person. He's my best friend. He's my buddy. She claimed that she believed Ramirez was completely innocent, wrongfully accused. Her devotion finally wavered in 2009. However, when she left Ramirez after DNA evidence proved he was involved in the murder of nine-year-old May Lung. As for Ramirez, he quickly became engaged again to writer Christine Lee, a 23-year-old pen pal. Ramirez died in 2013 from lymphoma after sitting on death row for 23 years. It's unclear whether hell would be a fair punishment for a Satan worshiper. So let's just say he rotted in the ground among the worms and the maggots. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thanks for listening to this episode. I know it was a long one. But this is the part of the show where I want to remember the victims. Please join me in a moment of silence for them. And again, thanks for listening.